the next 10 years, 50% of the population in the United States over 65, 50% will have Alzheimer's. If you overload the nerve with too much sugar, whether it's glucose or fructose, then you're going to build up too much sorbitol, which causes the nerve to swell. Cardiovascular disease is caused by sugar. Cholesterol is the naturally occurring substance that goes to heal these areas of inflammation. They're trying to tell you it's fat. No, it's not. It's sugar. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, a little backstory about today's episode. When Dr. Jacoby's publicist first presented his book to me, I was a little bit hesitant because I admittedly thought that I couldn't hear anything new about sugar, (laughs) having been immersed in the low-carb world for so long, which I'm embarrassed to say that because I should always be open to learning something new. That said, I was shocked by reading the book, Dr. Jacoby's Take on Sugar. Oh my goodness. Nobody talks about sugar the way he does as far as its relation to nerve compression. Get ready for your mind to be blown. This conversation was so enlightening and I really think you guys will enjoy it. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash sugar. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. There will also be a signed book giveaway on my Instagram. Yes, you can get a signed copy of Sugar Crush. So check out my Instagram for that. If you are at all enjoying this show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world. If you could take a brief moment and write an iTunes review, it helps so much more than most people realize. It helps getting the show charting, just getting more out there. So I really appreciate that. And thank you so much in advance. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Richard Jacoby. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So a little backstory about this. My audience, as you guys know, you're pretty familiar with things like low-carb diets and the importance of blood sugar and just a lot of topics that people are pretty familiar with. And when I received a book called Sugar Crush, How to Reduce Inflammation, Reverse Nerve Damage, and Reclaim Good Health. Reading the title, I obviously was expecting that I would be in line with what it was going to talk about, but I did not anticipate the amount of information that I learned reading this book. It really just opened my eyes, blew my mind. I know a lot of people, when they think of diabetes, they are familiar with things like people having to get amputations for diabetes. And that, for example, is something that I really had no idea what was the trail that led to that. Reading Sugar Crush, I learned so much about our nerves, how they affect so many things in our body, and how sugar plays a major role in damaging our nerves and 
leading to so many conditions. So I'm really excited to dive deep into this conversation. I am so thrilled to be here with Dr. Richard Jacoby. He is the author of Sugar Crush, and he is one of the country's leading peripheral nerve surgeons. He actually specializes in progressive damage to the nerves that does often result from diabetes. I have so many questions for him. I'm just so excited to jump in. So Dr. Jacoby, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's a pleasure, and I love the enthusiasm in your voice. I'm really excited to get into the weeds on this question of sugar. Where did it come from? How does it affect the nerves biochemically and relate all the different diseases that I've seen? Even, I think, COVID-19 is a prime example. Wow. Like I said, my audience is pretty familiar with this, but when they think sugar... They think sugar, they think blood sugar regulation issues, they might think weight gain being the issue, but nerves very rarely, I mean, does that even come up? It didn't come up in my head until I read read your book. So to start things off though, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal story? What led you to become a peripheral nerve surgeon and what led you to this? I don't know if you had an epiphany one day about the connection to sugar or what did that whole adventure and journey look like? perfect segue into epiphany. That is the correct word. I did have an epiphany. So I was running the Scottsdale Healthcare's Wound Care Center. I started it with a couple other doctors about 35 years ago. A gentleman by the name of Dr. Lee Dellen, who's a peripheral nerve surgeon out of Johns Hopkins, was giving a lecture. And he came up, or I went up to him after the lecture, and I said, Dr. Dellen, this is an amazing theory that you have. And he said to me, well, first of all, why do you podiatrists cut the nerve out in the foot? And I said, well, that's what we were taught. And he said, well, come down to Johns Hopkins with me. I will teach you my theory. You got to read my textbook, which is an amazing textbook. And I did. And I went down there and I was like, that was the epiphany. Here I was pretty well established in my trade and surgery, done thousands of surgeries. And here he's introducing a whole new concept. And it was like opening a door, an epiphany. And I I would never consider nerves per se as being related to diabetes other than you lose your feeling and you get an amputation. He said diabetic neuropathy is a nerve compression very much like the wrist, the median nerve for the carpal tunnel, which is is actually a profound statement. That's how it started about 20 years ago. In the beginning of the book, you tell the story about the epiphanies about amputations and things like that. And like I said, I, I think so few people think about this. And can we just dive in deep and get a picture of what nerves actually are? I feel like they're very underappreciated, but they do so much in our body. So how do they function normally? And then maybe we can understand how sugar affects them and makes them go awry. Well, I think everybody knows the theory of electricity. If you hit the switch, the light comes on. So the nerve is the same thing. It has a generating system of energy that sends electric impulse from a receptor. Let's say, let's use the light receptor, the eye. So a photon comes into the eye, trips the optic nerve, and sends a picture with little tiny pixels being built. So we know that is sight. 
and you take it for granted. That's electricity and photons. Well, the foot is the same thing, except there are mechanical receptors. So I always like to use this story. I said to a, a lady one day, and she had lost all her feelings. She had diabetic neuropathy. And I said, if you really look at your finger and look at those little ridges that we call fingerprints, I said, they were not put there by the FBI. Put there so we could feel our environment. So if you press, and that's good for your audience, just, just look at your fingers and feel those little ridges and press your finger down on the table. You'll feel a variance of pressure. And you can, even with your eyes shut, you can tell the difference in pressure. That's called the Merkel receptor. You can run your finger across your desk or your chair with your eyes closed, and you can tell the different textures. So that's what that's what mechanical receptors do. That's what photos receptors do for the eye. Now we have COVID-19, and that particular nerve is the olfactory nerve that's getting affected most with the sense of smell. So there's chemicals in the air. We can differentiate those chemicals, and we know it is the sense of smell or the tongue, the sense of taste. So these are all receptors. So I guess my epiphany was that day when Dr. Dellen said, why do you podiatrists cut the nerve out, which is Morton's nerve in the foot? And his epiphany came from this really simple concept. It was 1984, he published his first paper on this subject. He had a patient who had diabetic neuropathy who also had carpal tunnel problem with her wrist, and that's the median nerve. So if you look at your wrist and right at the the base of the thumb there, there's a, a nerve called the median nerve. If you pressed on that long enough, you would get numbness, tingling, and eventually would not be able to have any function in your hand. And he fixed that for this lady, and he also fixed her nerve in the elbow called the ulnar nerve. And she said to him, great, Dr. Dallin, why don't you fix my legs? And he said, no, you don't understand. That's a different disease. But he thought about it. He said, well, wait a minute. Maybe that is a compression neuropathy like the hand and the wrist and the elbow. And he went to the laboratory. I won't belabor all these experiments that he did, but they're amazing. And he proved that diabetic neuropathy, which is called diabetic polyneuropathy, meaning more than one nerve, is really a compression neuropathy exactly the same as the carpal tunnel of the wrist. Now, where I got involved with it, and I did thousands of his surgeries, and one day I said to him, about 15 years ago, I said, Dr. Dillon, I think there's more to your, th your theory. And he says, now, he wasn't kind to me when he answered me. Now, he's, in, he's actually up for the Nobel Prize of Medicine, and I'm telling him there's something more to his theory. And he said, why don't you figure it out? And I thought, oh, boy, I did it again. So... I started reading outside my normal sphere of thinking, and I was lucky, and I found this article written by Dr. John Cook. And if you want to look it up, that's Cook with an E at the end. And he wrote an article in 2005. It was called The Uber Marker, and it was on asymmetric dimethyl arginine. And that's a big word that I thought had something to do with Dr. Dellen's theory. I text him. And the amazing thing was he, he called me two hours after he got my text. This is about 2006. And he said, I love your theory. Come up to Stanford, where he was at the time. He's a cardiologist by training. He 
He's got a PhD in vascular biology, and he studies one molecule, that molecule, asymmetric dimethyl arginine. And he said, I really only study that molecule. So if you're interested, we'll pursue your idea. And we did. And I tested his molecule on my patients. And I came up with a concept. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. This is the biochemical pathway for the autonomic nervous system, which is the very, very first change you get. And that molecule, I thought, was blocking the nitric oxide pathway. And it is, but it took 15 years to figure out. So that's what this book is really about. How sugar affects the biochemistry and causes the aberrations, not only for the foot or the wrist, but the eye. And I think it's autism, Alzheimer's, MS, you name it, it doesn't matter. They're all the same. Nerves operate muscles. And when that chemistry is changed, changes happen to the end organ. That's what the book's about. So flail away at me and see if I can answer the question. Okay. I have a sort of random question about the nerve functioning. So, cause you're talking about the, the electrical signals that are sent. And then when the nerves are compressed that I'm assuming the electrical signals are, we perceive are being affected. Is the issue always in a mechanical damage to the nerve and then the signal that comes out is being affected? What I'm thinking of is like some people get like phantom nerve signs and how much of what we experience with our nerves is in our brain and how much of it is affected by the actual nerves? Well, that's a, that's a great question. So let's look at the electrical circuit. So the brain is the central computer, so to speak. The axons, which are the smallest unit of the nerves are receptors going out to all areas of your body and are sending signals from the very most afferent or away from and sending it into the brain, the efferent, and you're creating pictures and sounds and, and sensations and sense of smell and all. And then the emotions get involved because we're constantly getting this input. So when that electrical signal is interrupted for whatever means, and what we're talking about here is sugar. So let me give the basis of how sugar does that. And this is the known science. And um, there are thousands upon thousands of articles written on this in great journals. Number one, polyol pathway. So that's a chemical pathway that changes sugar into a alcohol sugar called sorbitol. If you overload the nerve with too much sugar, whether it's glucose, and we'll get into the different sugars, or fructose, then you're going to build up too much sorbitol, which causes the nerve to swell. And the nerve will then, because of the sorbitol, because it's an alcohol, will pull water into the nerve. And that's the mechanism by which the nerve swells. That's number one. Number two, the Maillard reaction. I'm not pronouncing that correctly. It's really milieu, but in Philadelphia, I'm not going there. <laughs> the, it's really a cooking term. What, what, that's the browning you see when you mix, like you baste a turkey. That's what gives it flavor. So they're called advanced glycosylated end products. And that's really a cooking term, but it's cooking your nerves. So if you take sugar plus the covering on the nerve, which is collagen, you're making that 
very pliable tissue, very crispy, and it starts to shrink. So if you have a nerve that's swelling and a covering that's shrinking, we call that compression. Now, that's in contradistinction to what neurologists say. If I had this lecture and there's a neurologist in your group, they would say, this is nonsense. This is not a curable disease. I would say to them, you can't cure it because you're not a surgeon. You only can write for a prescription. And you're trying to never tell the patient that sugar is causing the problem. And you're giving them a medication in the brain that works in the brain so they don't feel that change. Now, when you're in a lot of pain, yes, gabapentin, Lyrica, all those kind of medications are helpful. But it's like turning off the smoke detector while you're asleep and you wake up and you smell smoke and you turn the smoke detector off and go back to bed. You're going to die. You're going to die if you take these drugs because you'll never change your habits. And that's what sugar is doing. So the third pathway, that was the one I thought was not discovered. And that is asymmetric dimethyl arginine. Now, your audience, I don't know if how many are chemistry buffs, but let me try to give you that visual for that on this podcast. So asymmetric, what's the word mean? It means there's a methyl group on instead of being on either side of the arginine amino acid, they're on the same side. Asymmetric dimethyl, two methyl groups on the same side of L-arginine. Big deal, right? Well, it is a big deal because that molecule blocks the nitric oxide pathway. So when you're trying to convert L-arginine and a semi-essential amino acid to nitric oxide and you're blocking that, you are going to downregulate that molecule to peroxynitrite. So what does that mean? Well, nitric oxide dilates blood vessels and peroxynitrite shrinks blood vessels. So you're going to shut off the blood supply to whatever end organ you're talking about, whether it's your eye, your toe, your nose, your ear, doesn't matter. Even your gallbladder, it stops the function of that muscle and the end organ receptor. So over time, in the last three, four hundred years, some very good people in medicine started to see these symptoms that sugar was causing. And they named them, like MS, Charcot, 1860s. Person at autopsy has white spots in their brain. Well, that's what MS means, multiple areas of sclerotic white spots. Now, how is that a diagnosis? That's an observation. But they didn't know that sugar was doing that. And they're still not convinced that sugar is doing it. Let's take Alzheimer's. We have dementia. In the next 10 years, 50% of the population in the United States over 65, 50% will have Alzheimer's. What's the first symptom of Alzheimer's? The answer is, is sugar of the olfactory nerve, and you lose your sense of smell first, not your memory. So the neural network in the brain, which is the hippocampus, has three functions. One, it receives the olfactory nerve impulses. It's the addiction center. And it also affects long-term memory. That's Alzheimer's. It's sugar. There's no question about it. The mechanism of action, the way I'm describing it, is a new way of looking at it. I don't know if your 
audience knows of Dr. Perlmutter. Does that name? I've had him on the show. Oh, you had him. He he endorsed my book. Never spoken to him. This is really weird. So he, you had him on your show. Now he would be considered probably the best known neurologist in the natural field. Would you agree with that? Yes, he's amazing. He apparently called my editor when the book book was going to publication. He said, brings laser focus to the powerfully detrimental role of sugar and carbohydrates as direct toxins to the body. That's his quote on my book. But I have never spoken to him. And I would guarantee you he doesn't agree with me, even though he, in, in the terms of a nerve compression, because he's a neurologist. Now, he thinks I've read his book, and he's a great writer, and, and, and I'm, I'm not putting it down. I'm just, I would love to have this debate with him. Neuropathy, let's define that word. Neuropathy means a problem with the nerve. That's all it means. So he feels that Alzheimer's should be called type 3 diabetes. So he agrees with me, but he doesn't agree with me on the mechanism. Now, if we said Alzheimer's is type 3, then I guess MS would be type 4 and see how it would go on and on. No, there's one type. It's caused by sugar. Even type 1 and type 2. To me, type 1 is the early manifestation epigenetically of ruining your pancreas from day one. You carry the genes, a lot of genes. You taste sugar, you're done. That's type one. In the old days, you died because there wasn't any, it wasn't any insulin. Now we have insulin, so the type ones have lived, but it's still the same cause, sugar. Now, I don't want to preach here, and I'm starting to do that. So why don't you ask, ask me some specific questions, see if I can answer them. The people in this new mindset about Alzheimer's and the role of sugar, you know, Dr. Perlmutter's type 3 diabetes opinion and then yours with the nerves is the difference. Yours is that there's mechanical damage to the nerves being caused Absolutely. by sugar. And then the type 3 diabetes theory is that the blood sugar insulin dysregulation creates a lack of fuel to the brain cells. Is that what that theory is? Well, let's go back to Dr. Cook at Stanford. Now, his first name is John. We've become very good friends. He's now at Baylor, by the way. He headed stem cell and COVID research for the United States. He's probably the leading authority on all of this. Not probably, he is. So John's training is as a cardiologist, got a PhD in vascular biology. He's written over 500 articles. And he is, you should interview him. He is off the charts. I would love to. Oh yeah, he and he's so down to earth. And he he said, "Come up to Stanford. I like your idea." First question I asked him, Doctor Cook, I'm confused about this cholesterol hypothesis. Basically, being a diplomat, which I am not, he said it's flawed. I would call it fraud, but he said flawed. Hear the distinction of the words. So he ran this whole. I mean, it was like. I was educated by the brightest minds in the world. I mean, it's amazing. So for 15 years, I'm having a conversation just like we're doing now, one-on-one with him. So I said, I'm confused. And he straightened it out for me. He said, here's what he said. The lining of the blood vessel, which is the endothelium, is like Teflon. It's very, very smooth. When you eat sugar, it makes it like Velcro. 
And I said, so are you saying cardiovascular disease is caused by sugar? Well, that's what we tend to think. Well, no, it's absolutely true. So what does cholesterol have to do with it? Well, cholesterol is a signaling molecule, okay? In other words, if the lining of the blood vessel was irritated by sugar, cholesterol comes out of your liver and by a signal goes to the area of, we call that in medicine, the lesion, and patches up the lesion. Well, let's go back to the 1800s. A guy by the name of Verkow spoke five languages. He opened up an artery and he saw that stuff in the artery, that the cholesterol, and he spoke five languages. He's the guy that named that atherosclerosis because athero in Greek means gunk. And sclerosis is hardened gunk. Again, how is that a diagnosis? No, it's an observation. What he didn't understand and didn't know in 1863, that underneath that gunk was a rough spot called inflammation caused by sugar. That's how the word stuck. And then as we had all these different people get into the game, notably Ansel Keys, by the way, and I'm sure you know that name from your podcast, who pushed the cholesterol hypothesis, which is absolutely a fraud. Even the Framingham study, which caused billions of dollars, they're trying to tell you it's fat. No, it's not. It's sugar. Cardiovascular disease is caused by sugar. Cholesterol is a naturally occurring substance that goes to heal these areas of inflammation. MS in the brain, that's what it is. Alzheimer's, that's what it is. Diabetic polyneuropathy, that's what it is. Autism, that's another controversial point in my book. It's sugar. And that's a little bit more complicated to explain. But when I was writing my book, I looked at that nerve, and which is the, called the hypoglossal nerve. So I theorized that what's the symptom of, in autism? Delayed speech. What nerve operates that for the most part? There's several nerves, but that's the main one, hypoglossal nerve. So that's under your jaw. Just to give you a picture, that's where the cable runs. The nucleus is in the back of your brain. And its function is to innervate the tongue. And one of the, the functions of the tongue is articulation or speech. Well, if you have a mechanical disruption of that nerve, you're going to ask for a glass of water when you're two years of age and nothing's going to come out of your mouth. So you're going to be a little pissed and you're going to kick your foot through the wall because you can't express yourself. doesn't mean you're stupid. You just can't express yourself. So through neuroplasticity, you go off and go, well, I'll learn mathematics or music or something like that. And that's how these kids become savants and very good at certain things, but not speech because it's delayed. So how does that happen? There's a great article on, on Scientific America written somewhere around 2000, written by embryologists. And they looked at autistic kids and they looked at their features and they noticed that the ear was 15 degrees rotated anterior, anterior word, and the eyes were a little bit offset. And these kids were very good looking, but on day 22, after conception, by the way, or excuse me, yes, after conception, and day 24, there was a protein that was put down at the alve, which is the structure in the base of the brain where the hypoglossal nucleus forms, and they noticed that that 
space was 1.1 millimeter tighter than a normal development. Now, to me, if you take the nerve and you squeeze it by 1.1 millimeter, you're causing, what's the word? Compression. So how does that happen? Preconception, if the male and the female are carrying those genes and you spin the roulette wheel and those genes come up, both the mother and the father, and let me give you a background. Would you say that most pregnancies would more likely happen after a pizza and a six-pack of beer, carbohydrate, sugar? Probably be true. And that triggers this epigenetic event. When you trace autism from year 2000, which was 16 births per 10,000, and this year was close to one in 39, and projected to be one in two in another 10 years, there's got to be something environmentally happening. And that answer is sugar. And I think specifically is high fructose corn syrup. Now, Stephanie Seneff, I don't know if you've interviewed her, but she's the guru on glyphosate and Monsanto's herbicide Roundup. And she traces it to that in our gut, in the microbiome, and the shikimate pathway. So that's a whole other segue, and that would take another three hours to talk about. But she has a new book coming out, by the way, in June on this subject. And she helped me figure out some of these dots in my theory. What was her last name? Seneff. Stephanie Seneff. S-E-N-E-F-F. And you should interview her. She is probably in this field. I think she's probably about 80 now. She got, I think she's got three PhDs, one in physics, one in biology. She is the world's leading authority with what I just said. And that's a big topic. So what, is, what does COVID-19 have to do with sugar? If your immune system is downregulated because of sugar, you will expose your DNA to these viruses, which are just particles of information. You breathe them in and you breathe them out every day. But if you're eating sugar and you're blocking your vitamin C, that's part of the book, I think that's another segue, then you're going to allow these viruses to use your DNA to make copies of their RNA, basically, and you're going to die. So taking a vaccine, another country, none of these are vaccines. These are genetic and modified code that you put into your DNA. They're not vaccinations. Vaccination means you're not going to get the, the disease from the organism. And that is not true for Moderna and Pfizer. So that's another whole issue. So how do you protect yourself? Don't eat sugar, right? Take vitamin D, vitamin C, maybe melatonin, a little zinc, and you'll be fine. No, I'm loving this. I have a lot of questions. This is just a really random clarification. You're talking about getting pregnant, the connection with sugar, and then how it affects that development of the nerve with the tongue. Is it literally the blood sugar of the woman at the moment of conception or just in general, her blood sugar levels? I think it's both. Now we're going back to 2000. So the sugar issue was really not discussed very much. Now here we are in you know, 2021. So if you're eating a lot of sugar in the year 2000, you're not going to, if you were born in 2000, let's go back to, let me give you better numbers. Let's go back to 1974 when high fructose corn syrup was introduced into the American diet from Japanese, by the way. So just to make the math easier, 
if it's 1974 and the year 2000, and a person is eating a lot of sugar, which they were, and then let's say the fertility hotspot is the year 2000. So women are now getting pregnant at that time. So the numbers were 16 pregnant or 16 autistic kids per 10,000 in the year 2000. So they had roughly, you know, almost 20 years of eating sugar and it's starting to show up in the genetic code epigenetically. Has that been discussed in your show, Epigenetics, how that works? Yeah, I've had quite a few guests on about it. I've had David Sinclair on, which was... Oh, my God. I've had him on twice. He's amazing. You get some great people. Okay, let's talk David Sinclair. Great book, Anti-Aging. This is weird. So I just read that a couple months ago, and this is why it's so interesting in medicine. So David Sinclair, as your audience may know, he is a yeast biologist. The bottom line of his book is... Yeast replicates 25 times and they're done. That jellyfish go on forever. What are the genes? He splices them in there, puts it in mice and makes them grow longer. What are the genes and what can you do to increase your aging? He talks about rapamycin, by the way, on that mTOR theory, but also on page 74, he talks about his good friend who is a podiatrist and a friend of mine who doesn't... I shouldn't say he doesn't understand. He doesn't agree with anything that I say, but he's a good friend of David Sinclair. And his name is David Armstrong. He's a very bright guy. He's, he's a podiatrist. He's got a DPM, a MD, and a PhD. So he's not a, and he's probably, and he is one of the best writers in our profession. But he doesn't agree with this theory. He doesn't agree with Dr. Dellen. I've discussed this with him many times. Why? Because he is all about, quote, on research, and research is paid for by Big Pharma. And Big Pharma is the answer they always get. Not the truth. That's a big sentence. Not the truth. Nerves are compressed by sugar. And to avoid sugar, you can avoid these diseases. Big Pharma is allowing you to get the disease purposely, or I think so, and they'll give you a medication for the itises that they produce. What about a drug like metformin or something where you're... Well, metformin, then David Sinclair talks about that. Some people think it extends your life, but I think what it does, it causes neuropathy, by the way. Causes it. Oh, yeah. Because it interrupts the, back to the L-arginine, equation. So there's another little, in chemistry, this is what makes it so difficult. Every molecule has a coenzyme. So that coenzyme is tetrahydrobiopterin. Big word. Well, notation is BH4 for your audience to look up. So BH4 is made up of B6, B12, folic acid, and vitamin C. So when you take metformin, you're messing with that equation. And it messes with the blood supply to the autonomic nervous system, and it starts the process. So you're treating, but really, what, what are you saying when you're taking metformin? You're not telling them that is correcting the disease. You're saying, take metformin, eat whatever you want, and you take more metformin and eat whatever you want. And if that doesn't work, and this is called polypharmacy, and I remember back when Harvard 
medical school probably 25 years ago was pushing this and pushing it big time. What's polypharmacy? I remember the, I made up a little uh, mnemonic for that. Smart insulin. Smart. S, sulfonylureas. M, metformin. And then the R was rosiglitazone. And ticolizazone, I forget the exact name of that one. And when you did all that polypharmacy, then you put them on insulin, never telling them to stop eating sugar. That's insanity. But that's, that's, that's big pharma. That's, and now we have a COVID, same process, same biochemistry, different tissue. The endothelium of the lung cell, it gets inflamed, fills up with fluid, can't breathe. Can't breathe, you die. Pretty simple. So you've had David Sinclair on. I didn't know that. You had Perlmutter on there. Didn't know that. Okay, let's go through the list. <laughs> it's a long list. <laughs> How about Fat Chance? Lustig, you have him on? For fructose? No, I really want to. Yeah, he's a terrific writer. He wrote Fat Chance. Now, his hypothesis is similar to mine, that fat is good, sugar is bad. But he would not probably agree with my hypothesis that of nerve compression, but I don't think he's ever been exposed to this thought process. And most doctors haven't. I, I was just fortunate, fortunate because I studied with both Dellen and Cook. So I get that I get that segue. Throw out a couple other names. Maybe I can give you some counterpoints. I had Wim Hof on, but that's not really nerve. Oh, I love Wim Hof. Well, that, no, that's perfect. So who regulates the autonomic nervous system by breathing? What a concept. Well, that's what you're doing. I'd love to do a study on asymmetric dimethylarginine and Wim Hof because it would show that those levels of inflammation would go down and change the autonomic nervous system. Perfect segue. Who else? Now I'm thinking about breathing because you're talking about the Framington Heart Study. Did you know that the factor most correlated to longevity in that study was lung capacity? Did not know that. That was like one of the most mind-blowing things. I learned that when I interviewed James Nestor, who wrote about breathing. I have one really quick question, though, to backtrack a little bit. Now I have to ask, just because of what you said about metformin, do you know if there are the same issues with the BH4 pathway and everything if you're taking berberine? Don't know the answer to that. I'm not saying that taking these things to lower your glucose is bad, but if you're taking them to mask your addiction to sugar, that's dangerous. Yeah, 100%. Another backtracking question, because I want to clarify some things. So the three main pathways that you believe sugar is causing the compression issue. So the polyol, the French word, the malleard, <laughs> and the uh, nitrous oxide and the dimethylarginine and everything with that. Because I had never heard that before about the excess sugar getting metabolized into sorbitol. I just wasn't even remotely aware of that. So how much sugar are we talking? Like, is it the amount of sugar you're eating? Is it a blood sugar level that you have to reach? Well... <sighs> It's, it's pretty much all sugar. I mean, it, you really have, ideally, you should be on a ketogenic diet. That is almost impossible in the United States because it's not readily available. But from a physiologic and anthropologic, is that the right word? Sense, what did Lucy eat? She was the first primate. Well, this is Don Johansson. Did you have him on your show? Oh, you should have him. He's the world's leading authority 
on who are we and where we came from. So Lucy, he was the discoverer of Lucy in Ethiopia, and I met him, and he invited me to a conference in New York City, and the question was, what did Lucy eat? And she became human. Now, this is the Darwinian theory. I'm not fully aboard on this, by the way, although I do follow that line of thinking. But there's many ways that we have become human, one of which is is diet. So when we went from a carbohydrate diet, like gorillas, that's all they eat, your alimentary canal is very long because you're sitting there eating bamboo. It takes forever to digest that. So you have the big, um, I'll summarize this, this conference. So you have a big rib cage. You have your big rib cage, your knuckles are on the ground. And when you start to eat bugs and fat and meat, your rib cage gets short, or excuse me, your alimentary canal gets shorter because you have to digest that and get that stuff out of there quickly within the first 24 hours. So you don't need a big rib cage. If you don't have a big rib cage, your ilium, your pelvic bone comes more in the frontal plane and you and you start to develop a waist your knuckles come off the ground you start to stand up you have a, what we call plantar grade position now your head and neck are at right angles you can see the horizon your hands are freed up you can make bow and arrows and eventually atomic bob and control the world that's on diet from carbs to fat now the last 10,000 years the king said, hey, you, climb up the tree and get me some honey because I like that. So most kings were fat, and now everybody's fat because we're all eating sugar. So we're going backwards instead of forwards. So that was the capsule of diet <laughs> evolution three million years. Actually, I thought of one more person you might know. Do you know Dr. Benjamin Bickman? No. He just wrote a book about insulin resistance. Oh, how not to die, I think. No, I haven't, I haven't read it, but the word insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome were developed by Dr. Gerald Raven, who was an endocrinologist at Stanford, and Dr. Cook took over his clinic. So Dr. Cook is the extension of that whole theory. Okay. Another question, because you're talking about the, the benefits of a ketogenic diet, low-carb diet, how do you feel about people who regulate their blood sugar levels on high carb, low fat diets. Like I've had on Cyrus and Robbie who wrote Mastering Diabetes, I've had on some other vegan people. And I'm just always really fascinated that, you know, there seem to be these two opposing camps. I mean, often about like regulating blood sugar. I guess, can we clarify, is it all carbs, mostly processed sugar? Well, definitely. Well, let's let's get some common ground. So natural food is what human beings did eat and should eat. Okay. So I think both camps could agree with that. Now, of those foods, the vegans probably would point to more of uh, no meat and all, uh, obviously, all plant-based foods. And there are a lot of people who do well on that. I think Gender-wise, women have more of a capacity to do a vegan-type diet, and men are more adapted to a carnivore diet. But we meet somewhere in the middle, and we can do both. I know for myself, i got to be over on the carnivore side to feel good. And 
So I think that's a genetic thing. So in the vegan side, there are a lot of sugary, carbohydrate-laden foods. Now let's go to the food pyramid, another fraud. Eat 6 to 11 helpings of pasta bread on the bottom of that. I think we can all agree that's not the right thing to do. We need to get up to the pyramid top, which is where the fats are. So we both need vegan and carnivorous fat because you cannot live on meat alone. You would die. Your kidneys would shut down. And if you ate just carbohydrates, you would die. But you can live totally on just fat. Now, where are the sources of fat from the vegan and the carnivore? So you can have fats, avocado, things of that nature on the vegan side. And then you have the fats on the carnivore side. So that's, that's where the common ground is, fat. So to clarify, because we couldn't live like just fat. Yes, yes, always. Well, let's let's look at the big studies for Would protein be the only thing? Oh yeah. So an Eskimo, if you're living on a iceberg, real going back, you don't have any you can't grow a garden, there's no vegetables there. They don't even eat fish. They eat blubber. They eat just fat. They live they're perfectly healthy. Now if you just ate meat, there's a good study of Canadian Trappers got stuck in the, the winter, and they came back to find them, and they were all dead. And they just ate rabbits, which has no fat. And they all died because their kidneys shut down too much protein. And conversely, if you just ate sugar all day, you would be dead pretty quick. So, yes, you could just eat fat and live forever. That's not would really boring. <laughs> Wouldn't you need to take in protein? No. No, you really don't. You would just recycle your own proteins indefinitely? Well, it's a ketogenic diet. The body is designed to only eat fat. So that's called gluconeogenesis. You manufacture sugar out of the fat when you need it. But what about the actual, like, the protein? (laughs) I thought there was one amino acid that we couldn't synthesize from ourselves. I thought L-arginine was an amino acid that we would have to get at some point from diet for the heart. Well, semi-synthetic or semi-essential, I should say. It's semi-essential. I I did ask Dr. Cook, he's an expert on that. We don't need that much L-arginine, but we do in this modern society because it's being blocked by that chemistry I talked about. So you need more L-arginine to convert over to get nitric oxide. Now, this is another sidebar to that whole story. And it's just weird for my training. Now, as a podiatrist, it seems odd that I'm even talking about these subjects because you wouldn't think a podiatrist would really be into this. But let's go back when I was in college or medical school in Philadelphia. And in those days, we used to do work-study programs. Does that ring a bell to anybody? In other words, we got about 85 cents an hour to work in a laboratory. Slave labor, really, what it was. So I was fortunate to work with Dr. Michael Sheff, and he was an MD, PhD biochemist from London, and he was Watson and Crick's uh, research scientist. He worked in that lab when they got discovered DNA. Came to Philadelphia. He was teaching at different medical schools. So I became his research assistant. 
And we were working on PKU, which is a, a genetic defect, a defect of uh, aniline, another amino acid, which causes caused that staining of the uh, basal ganglia, causing retardation. My job was to feed the sh- feed the rats different shells, which is food. So we had food that was. And remember, rats rats are carnivores, and we're we're feeding them carbohydrates. One shell had more sugar than the other, but still, it's kind of a skewed uh, experiment. We made our own electrophoresis. But bottom line, we're looking at these amino acids to see which one was causing this genetic defect, which we did not figure out back then, which was discovered actually about six or seven years ago. And you know what the answer was? BH4. That's what I was working on 50 years ago. That's kind of weird. So BH4 is, it was not converting the L-arginine and through another chemical pathway with that phenylaniline. And that was the answer to the question. Now it's been synthesized by a company called Biomarin up in the Bay Area. So what do animals eat? Let's look at those guys. They're carnivores. They only eat fat, or excuse me, meat. That's what they get fat in their diet along with meat. Like chickens, they're carnivores. They're vultures. Cows, they eat grass. They're herbivores. But we feed them corn and we make omega 6 fatty acids. So, what even the experiments are, are skewed because they're not eating the, the food that that biologically they would they would seek out that and that's why i think we have such a pandemic so high fructose corn syrup is in 80% of all the food in the united states and meat is 98% corn fed it all traces back to the concept that cholesterol was bad let's take quaker oats heart healthy are you kidding me it's, it's a play on words. Does it lower cholesterol? That's what they claim. But cholesterol has nothing to do with heart disease. Oats are grains. Grains are carbohydrates. Carbohydrates break down to monosaccharides, our sugar. That's what's destroying this country. Also related to the BH4, the cofactors involved with it, and you already touched on this a little bit, but could you talk a little bit about the competition between vitamin C and glucose? My favorite subject. I even have a, well, I'm not sure I'll even go there with what I think is really happening. But do you know Greg Braden? I do not. Okay. He's another phenomenal human being. You should have more since you have all these great people on. So Greg is a geologist by training, which is interesting. And I've never met him, but I've, I've listened to and read all his papers. And he's a great lecturer, by the way. One of his points in his theory is that 220,000 years ago, there was a genetic mutation on chromosome 2 and chromosome 7. And we as humans have 23 chromosomes and apes have 24. Find that rather odd. But one of those genetic changes was we as primates are not able to synthesize vitamin C, which is made from glucose. Then the reason is because of that mutation. Can I ask you a quick question about that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do you think we acquired that mutation? Was there ample vitamin C in the environment? What would be the reason? Or ample glucose in the environment? 
like the glucose vitamin C connection, make an argument for glucose? Well, I love the way you phrase that. And by the way, we still have the gene. It doesn't operate. Something happened 220,000 years ago. Do you know who Aaron Filler is? No. Write that down too. To answer that question, I'm going to, I'm going to use some of his work. He wrote the book, Upright Ape. Fascinating human being. So Aaron was a PhD student at Harvard under Stephen Jay Gould, another anthropologist that's well known. And he was given a fossil of the lumbar spine, and he was sent to Cambridge to look at it under a Tesla magnet, which was very powerful at that time, and came up with the concept that we were descended from an upright ape in contradistinction to creationism and versus Darwinism. So he is another, another theory. So Aaron, after he got his PhD, since he knew the lumbar spine, so he went to medical school, and since he knew that he's now a doctor, he became a neurosurgeon. And since he knew the lumbar spine, then he wrote a algorithm for MRIs to identify nerves and compression. That's where I met him. And he just recently got his law degree as well. Can you imagine this? So in his book, he does discuss some of these rather unusual happenings many years ago. So there, something happened, and it was by design or it was just a mutation of fluke. I don't know the answer, but I have my ideas. That's a subject for another, another talk. But Glucose is the substrate for vitamin C, and somehow we can't do it. Everybody else can. Guinea pigs can't make vitamin C, some fruit bats, and some primates, but basically we're the only ones. So we can't do it. So now we're loaded with sugar. And if you don't have vitamin C, which compete, are you familiar with the ascorbate competition theory? Is it this theory or is it something different? Well, it's. Well, Linus Pauling said that vitamin C was the common cold and cancer, but he was not familiar with the ascorbate competition theory. And what that says is that vitamin C and, vi and glucose, which are almost identical except for two carbons, and only modified by insulin. So in other words, I use this metaphor. So there's a knock at your door, your cell, and there's two molecules there. and Insulin opens the door and said, how can I help you fellows? And he said, he looks at him and he said, well, you're vitamin C. You can't come into the cell, but glucose you can. So glucose gets in the cell and it causes a storm, a cytokine storm, because it causes inflammation. And that's where BH4 gets affected and the conversion of L-arginine to nitric oxide, which is, has everything to do with COVID-19, by the way. So why that happened and why it's happening more and more and more. I don't know why, but I find it very interesting. And I'm writing a new book on that subject. So I don't want to give you the bottom line as of yet. And so I have a little bit more dots to connect, but it's a very, very unusual dot. I'll leave it at that for the moment. I'm fascinated by this. So if glucose and vitamin C are present, can the cell take in any vitamin C at all? Let's go back to the ads of the orange juice ads. 
you know, in the food food pyramid, eat your fruits and vegetables. Well, fruit is all sugars. There's some vitamin C in there, but not like it was 50 years ago. So it's been hybridized. And this is what I don't think people get. I eat my fruits and vegetables. Well, how come you're 250 pounds, if that's true? No, you're eating sugar. You don't know it. Do you need vitamin C? Yes, but the ascorbate competition theory allows doesn't allow the vitamin C to get in your in, into your cell. So let me go back 50 years again. And some of your audience may be that old, but when I was a kid, when we had a grapefruit, we put sugar on the grapefruit. And why? Because fruit is tart. It's not sweet. Oh, Dr. Jacoby, you're no, it's sweet. Well, of course it is now, but it wasn't then and never was. So you had to put sugar on it. And but the public loves sugar. So if you're selling grapefruits to Safeway, you're going to make it as sweet as can be. That's ruby red. They sell grapes. So grapes, bananas, all the ones we love are sugar. So you're really not getting vitamin C the way you should. If we were to eat that tart fruit, though, that does have some carbs, but vitamin C, can we take in the vitamin C? I'm just really haunted by this question. Yeah, you can, but you're not going to like it. I think you need to supplement. Supplement vitamin C. Yeah, that was one of the things that you mentioned in the book was that our immune cells had 50 times the amount of insulin receptors as other cells. And so when we are saturated in sugar, they can't get the vitamin C. They can't. No, no. Going back to, because you're speaking about damage to the olfactory nerve and the loss of smell and then the progression to Alzheimer's, to clarify, was the damage to that olfactory nerve the leading cause in the path to Alzheimer's or is it separate? I Like, are people who have COVID now, are they going to be susceptible to Alzheimer's? It's a good question. I think yes. And I don't know if the olfactory nerve sense of smell is going to be re so that no one knows that at the present point. But why is the olfactory nerve involved? Okay, so the olfactory nerve goes through the, what's called the cribricorn bone, which is a small aperture. So think of it like a wire going through a wall, a concrete wall. If that nerve is swelling, which it is, it's going to cut off the blood supply and the electrical supply. That's why you can't differentiate the smells. I mean, that's the mechanical aspect of it. So back to Dr. Perlmutter, you have to understand the mechanics of Dr. Dellen's theory to understand all the things I'm saying. And they are not taught that. Absolutely not taught that. Now, I'll tell you, there's another guy, and his name is, you'll like this name, his name is Dr. Dick. And what, what do you think his first name is? Peter. <laughs> Let's just say that because it's amusing, uh, but he's a, he's the number one neurologist at the Mayo Clinic and written a textbook on diabetic neuropathy, which I read. And he did predict, by the way, that people who had gallbladder disease would go on to have diabetic neuropathy or, or diabetes. And I read that book and I had my gallbladder out, oh God, at least 30 years ago, not knowing all the things I just told you. And I theor- that part of my theory, um, I'm in the wound care center, and I'm seeing patients with gangrene, and knowing that fact, 
I say, okay, let's take a look at your history. Oh, you had your gallbladder out 25 years ago. Uh-oh, is this me 25 years from now or 30? And what's it got to do with anything? Well, the prevailing diet for gallbladder disease is to eat, not eat fat, right? Well, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat carbs. The very thing you shouldn't do. So if you eat carbs, sugar, you will irritate your vagus nerve, and it's innervated to a muscle, which is the gallbladder, and it won't empty. If it doesn't empty, it'll form a stone, which is made up of, you guessed it, cholesterol. It blocks the duct. It hurts like hell, and you want it out. And we do. We cut them out. 800,000 a year in the United States. What's the answer? Don't eat sugar. Oh, Dr. Jacoby, you're a podiatrist. Well, I'm telling you the answer. I think I have a unique perspective. And the only reason is because Dr. Dillon taught me this amazing theory. I took it to Stanford with Dr. Cook, and he's the world's leading authority. And here we are. Like I said in the beginning, it just blew my mind. Like I hadn't heard, like I said, I hadn't heard any of this anywhere. And I guess that makes sense. I'm reading right now the Alzheimer's solution. It's written by doctors Aisha Scherzay and Dean Scherzay. Do you know them? I'm going to ask them about all of this, see what their opinions are. This is so fascinating. Do you think, okay, this is a random, random question. Do you think a lot of the health benefits of wine are because of the dilation effect on the blood vessels then? Probably the right answer. Now, wine is an interesting quantity. So it has a lot of sugar in it, alcohol sugar. But resveratrol as well. So most people like wine are going to lean, oh, it's got resveratrol, so that's good for you, which it is. But you probably have to drink a couple of gallons to get the effect. Then you get too much sugar. So and, and do I drink wine? Yes. Do it. If you're looking at the wines and you want to be keto, you want the darkest wine possible, Cabernet. And the white wines like Riesling and Chardonnay types, and they have a lot of sugar. So the dilation from the alcohol probably counteracts to an extent the compression of the nerve. I don't know that for a fact, but I'd like to believe that. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by like all of the discussion around wine and the health benefits and the studies and what is the main thing. Is it you know, is it the polyphenols? Is it the, just the social aspect of having wine and the emotional effect? Is it, but the more and more I think about it, the more I'm wondering if maybe the main thing is the, the dilation effect from it. Yeah, it, it probably does help, but it does affect your nerves. That's what ataxia is. And that's what dysarthria are. In other words, when you drink too much, you're going to affect your nerves and you start to slur and your gait is unsteady which is the effect of the sugar on your nerves. And I see a lot of alcoholic neuropathy, by the way. Yeah. Do you know dry farm wines? Are you familiar with them? No. Oh, you would love them. You would love them. They're a company based in Napa, but they, they go throughout Europe and they go to all the different wineries and then they test the wineries and test the wines to find wines that are organic, that are low sugar, low alcohol, free of pesticides. And then it's the only wine I drink now. And like, if you want to get quote health benefits from wine, drinking the wines they have tested, I love them. I can introduce you to them. They're amazing. We all need good wine. Yes. 
One other question. You did mention the vagus nerve. I've done an episode on the vagus nerve with Amy Brannon. She she makes a device called Zen by Nuvana, which is a vagus nerve stimulating device. I feel like it's not a normal nerve. It's so hard to understand <laughs> what it is because it seems to be a whole system and a whole highway. The word vagus means wandering, by the way. And it does. It wanders to every organ system in, in your gut, the heart, gallbladder, the intestine. It's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting nerve for sure. Is it a single nerve? Well, the, the trunk of the nerve, the vagus nerve, and then it has many, many branches. That's why it wanders all over the place. Okay. And I'm assuming it is highly impacted as well? I think so, yes. The microbiome affects it. You need to get Stephanie on your show. Yeah, I wrote her name down. Oh, yeah. And you should interview. She was just interviewed today by Dr. Mercola. Oh, I had him on the other day. Really? For EMFs. We talked about EMFs. So he reviewed my book, by the way, when it was in, in the galleys, but he did not comment on it. And I like Dr. McCall and I follow him. But again, he's a, a medical doctor. He doesn't get this mechanical connection to biochemistry. I know he doesn't. So it's like, what are you talking about? Well, that's the connection that needs to be made. And it has been made. I just connected all these mechanical things with all these different itises. That's, that's what I did. Am I right? I think so. I think I got the biochemistry down. The literature supports everything I just told you. I didn't make any of that up. I just connected. So McCall is good, and he loves Stephanie, by the way, and the sugar make pathway. And since she's going to have a new book in June, you should get her on before the book comes out. And she's a great person. I mean, she's, oh, she's so bright. The book is about glyphosate? That's the, the main? And the microbiome. And we had this interesting discussion six years ago on that subject because there are 10 to 1 microbes to every human cell. So we were theorizing that maybe these, these decisions we make are not our own, but are being made by these organisms, sending it up the vagus nerve and that, to the hippocampus. And that's why we make all these decisions that are bad for us. They're running the show. I would believe that. I've heard that from different people throughout the years. And I really think <laughs> that it's something really big. How about Joe Rogan? Have you had him on your show? No, that would be insane. <laughs> well, he, he's, he's right up there. He understands all this stuff. Yeah, that's what I love about him is that he really, he really, he does. He gets the stuff. I love when he brings on people in this whole sphere onto his show. I just love those interviews. I think they're... Oh, yeah. How about Neil Reardon on stem cells? On who? Who was it? Neil Reardon. No. So he's a PhD, world's leading authority on stem cells. And he had, Joe Rogan had him on his show. He has a big clinic in Panama, and I visited that. I'm very, very much into stem cell and regenerative medicine as an antidote to all these inflammations. I just have, do you know Sergey Young? I know the name, but I don't know. I just had him on. He's an investor in longevity technology. That was really, really fascinating. All the like the future of longevity and the healthcare system and the way that ideally I hope it does go. It was really fascinating. So yeah, what is your interest when it comes to stem cells? Well, I, I I've been doing them for 15 years, starting with PRP and now 
amniotic stem cell, which, by the way, none of them are stem cells. So the name is going to be changed pretty soon to medicinal signaling cells rather than some kind of stem cells. But having said that, they all work. They have they work through the immune system and they have the paracrine system. And the little nanoparticles of exosomes really are bits of information that go cell to cell and recharge the bioelectric field, if I can simplify it. So stem cells really don't, I, I use this in my lectures, stem cells don't give a rat's ass what you call your itis. They really don't. Your itises are caused by, is inflammation. Sugar is the number one cause. Stem cells go in there and reverse that. And it's that simple. But the science behind it is so complicated. It scares people. You have your own stem cells in your bone marrow. But if you're over 50, you really, you're not going to get an effect from that. So we use perinatal cells from a live birth. They're processed in an FDA lab. And they're very, very effective and very safe. And that's another discussion for another show. Wow. So fascinating. So many topics. Well, for listeners, like I said in the in the introduction, there is a full transcript in the show notes. So don't worry. I know we've been talking about a lot of really deep things. And the show notes are at melanieavalon.com slash sugar. And we talked about the diet prescription, but your book and Sugar Crush, you do give two basic dietary approaches that people can potentially follow to address all of these issues. What made you decide between the two, the one that's more ketogenic and then the one that's more based on glycemic load, glycemic index? Well, interesting. The nutritionist is used to work for Dr. McCall. My editor said, you can't just say, if it tastes good, don't eat it. You know, I say, read the label, don't eat sugar go cold turkey, but most people can't do that. So they wanted a, an alternative. I find that difficult. It's like torturing yourself to wean yourself off of sugar. You just got to do it. It's just like smoking. You know, you got to get over to the ketogenic side, whether you're a vegan or a carnivore, either one. Ever since I first went low carb, I don't know, 15 years ago, adopted like a paleo diet and intermittent fasting. The consistent for me has been intermittent fasting, but I do alternate between a low carb, high fat diet in my eating window and then a high carb, low fat diet, but it's all whole foods based. So it's lean meats, lots of fruit, but I do it paired with fasting. How do you feel about that? Well, let's use the word lean meat as if fat was bad. No, I like fatty meat. Hey, that's the distinction. Oh, wait a minute. Fat causes heart disease. No, it doesn't. That's a lie. So for me personally, I get nervous about combining fat. I'll eat a lot of fruit and I get nervous about combining. Well, a lot of fruit is a lot of sugar. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I go through my keto spins, but then when I bring back the fruit carbs and go, it's always whole foods, but I go leaner on the the meat side of things and bring back the carbs. I feel like I get the best of both worlds with the fasting all day and then the fruit at night. Yeah, and I, I do the intermittent fasting. Well, it's easy to do intermittent fasting when you're on a keto diet because you're not hungry anyway. And having said that, did I eat today? No. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't because I don't think about food. And now we're talking about food and I'm starting to think about it. But no, I, I haven't had a thing. I put butter in my coffee. I do that routine. 
I'm interviewing Dave Asprey this week. Oh, another guy. Yeah, our editor at HarperCollins, and I was doing that, and I told my editor, I said, I'm going to do a book on how to get it onto the keto on butter and your coffee. And he said, well, we already signed up a guy, and it's him. No way. This was before. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I share an agent with him, which is really surreal. So that's how I got connected to him. Well, you know, Dave Asprey, and apparently, as you are well versed in this, do you know Nina Teichholz? She's on my list of people. I have like, I have a friend who can connect me to her. I really want to interview her. Big Fat Surprise. Is that what she? Yep. And that had an influence on me as well. And we're friends and we're on the same nutrition council for the U.S., which is totally political. And the sugar lobby runs this country. But she's now she's an investigative reporter and she came to the same conclusions I came to. She's a great, great speaker and she knows her subject. So you'll have fun with her. Yeah, I'm excited. Her and I'm about to interview Gary Tobbs for his new Gary Tobbs. Okay, <laughs> that's that's funny. Now Gary Tobbs was married to my editor. Oh really? Yes. So yeah, Gary Tobbs, I mean, he knows his subject on sugar. Does he agree with me on the compression portion? I never talked to him. I don't think he understood. I don't know. Ask him that question. I will. Now, I want to ask everybody this question. I want to go back <laughs> to all my interviews. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. Were there any other topics that you wanted to discuss and explore? Well, I think I could take you deep into the stem cell world from a very, very different perspective. And that is the new, new thing. And that's loaded with political espionage. It works. It works on anything. Big pharma. It's it's going to be, it's going to be dynamite. The stem cells. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, we'll have to, I guess, stay tuned <laughs> for that. Oh my goodness. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. You're writing another book right now about the glucose, vitamin C. A I got a couple couple things that I'm doing. One is on uh, stem cells, or actually on exosomes, which are the nanoparticles. So my placeholder for the name is exosomes, the quantum foam of biology. So, and then I have a, believe it or not, a screenplay that I'm trying to finish up that takes all this stuff into a very interesting ending. Like a drama screenplay or a documentary or? It's more of a sci-fi. Oh, very cool. That's right up my alley. Based on all this stuff. Oh, I love that. I do want to ask another person I interviewed recently was Dr. Jason Fung for The Cancer Code. So do you think that your global compression theory plays a causal role in cancer as well? Oh, sure. Sugar, you know, that goes back to Otto Warburg. He got the Nobel Prize. He fed cancer cells fructose. They lived, took it away. They died. Patient lived. That's as simple as I can put it. So for listeners, how can they best follow your work? Do you have links that you can put out there? Are you on social media? I am and I'm not. I just, I'm still practicing. So my- You're practicing doctors. Yeah. So hard for me to communicate to the world on that. I'd I'd rather just do these, these kind of podcasts with people like you that really are a terrific interviewer and can take, take me where I need to go. My website is Extremity Health Centers. And I also have Sugar Crush, the book, which I post a lot of stuff on. But 
your audience, just listen to the podcast. I think there's a much easier way. My book did come out in Audible, which I think they did a terrific job. It's much easier to digest Audible rather than reading it, I think. I love Audible. Yeah. Mike Lentz did the Audible. I I was listening to it, and I, I told my editor, I said, God, he did a terrific job. He just rewrote this. No, he said, she said, no. He, he just read it differently. I said, what do you mean? He read it word for word. I said, I can't believe it. I thought somebody else had written it. It's that well done. That's so funny. Well, the very last question that I always ask every single guest on this show, is just because I've come to realize more and more each day how important our mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? Talk to you, number one. I think there's such a network out there that's off the grid. And you mentioned all these doctors' names, all these people. Your Their message and my message would not be able to be out there if it wasn't for this, for this venue. I, I'm really grateful for that. Well, thank you so much. I, as well, am so grateful for your work. I just want everybody to read this book and hear about it and have their eyes opened like I feel mine have been. And I'm really, really looking forward to all of your your future work to come. And hopefully we can stay in touch. And I'd love to bring you back on the show in the future for other topics. Well, I'd love to do that. Okay, perfect. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.